You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 30 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. The Panama Papers were the scandal the world had to have. They came out while the G20 were already working on a common reporting standard to combat tax evasion through offshore tax havens. So the Panama Papers in 2016 and then a year later, the Paradise Papers, probably helped to bring everybody on board. I asked Ben Sewell of Sewell and Kettle in Sydney whether he could shed more light on the Panama Papers for us and he kindly said yes. My first question to Ben is whether the Panama Papers affected his work as an insolvency lawyer. Here's his answer. They do. I've got a couple of cases now which uh, deal with the same issues. So deal with the techniques and the methodologies that are used to hide assets. Over the years I've worked for insolvency practitioners who have um, tried to trace assets into the offshore world and uh, they've found a big black hole. So I've acted on both sides. I've acted for both the uh, dodgy director who's trying to hide the assets and also for the Australian-based creditor or insolvency practitioner who's trying to go overseas and trace assets. And um, I can tell you that it's um, a frustrating process if, if you're acting for the creditor or the liquidator in Australia because it's very difficult to go into these areas. They're almost like a black hole. None of your clients actually have been outed through the Panama Papers or the Paradise Papers? No. If Look, if, if they were, we'd have to exclude that from the podcast today because I think confidentiality would yes. apply. But I can tell you no. They just basically did the same thing as they people... They did the same thing. Hmm. All, look, all the techniques in the, uh, the Panama Papers um, leak are techniques that have been used by law firms and people around the world for Decades. a very long time. Hmm. Over the holiday period, I've been reading a uh, series of books by a barrister in Australia called Peter Klein. And Peter Klein was struck off as a barrister in 1959. And over the next 15-year period, so from 1959 to 1974, he wrote a series of books on how to use tax havens around the world. And so he lived in a, um, a hotel in, in Geneva for six months a year, and then he came back to Australia and he lived in Australia for six years. Uh, sorry, for six months a year. And that and was to not be an Australian resident for tax purposes? No, it was because he, he, I think his business approach was to advise clients in Australia and then go overseas and help them hide their money. So the first half of the year would be getting the clients and I think the second half of the year would be going to Geneva to help them hide their money. Oh, I see. So he basically would pick them up from the plane, lead them to the banks, show them around, Something get all like the papers that. signed. Like he, he got himself in, into a big problem in um, 1975 in America where he was acting for the mafia and he got arrested. So he escaped and got back to Australia. But the point of what I'm saying is that there's this whole series of books that someone wrote in the 1960s. Yes. So it's nothing new. That talks about these approaches it's nothing new but what is new is the leaks but the the Mossack Fonseca leaks and the Paradise Papers the Appleby leaks that have mm. just come out and also the um, actions that have been taken by the tax officers around the world to get information from the offshore world so they're a lot more active now they're a lot more active they've got more and more powers so you've got the and you've got this I think what is a perfect storm you have a democratisation of the offshore world, so it's really easy to set up an offshore structure on the one hand and cheap 
Okay, you can do it online. And then on the other hand, there's more and more information which is which is coming to light. So if you assume that you can just fly over to the offshore world and set up a bank account and hide hide your money, it's probably you, you're probably going to come unstuck. But ironically, it's easier to do it today. So um, that's why the Panama Papers were so relevant for you because it's basically the same group of people, the same techniques. Look, it was... I don't know if you're, you're a fan of any of, you know, the organized crime stories from the 80s, but, you know, there was an entire decade where the, the Caribbean jurisdictions were used to launder our money around the world. The Mossack Fonseca papers are the first time that there's been a huge leak of information that shows the mechanics of how that, that was done. So the Mossack Fonseca leaks covered information for one law firm from the 1970s to 2014. So every document that, that they prepared, every email, something like 11 million individual records of information got leaked. And journalists from all around the world have cooperated and analyzed and written stories about these techniques that they use. So it is the first time that there has been a huge drop of information about this um, black hole. To give you a bit of background, the offshore world, what it refers to is this. It refers to a jurisdiction in which that jurisdiction, so the country, the territory, gives carte blanche to anyone to turn up and incorporate and basically use a company structure and use bank accounts and use trusts and foundations and what other instruments that the jurisdiction allows and also gives a secrecy protection. So the Mossack Fonseca leaks dealt with not just the country in which the law firm was based, but also structures that, that they had uh, set up in the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, uh, in America, in a lot of different jurisdictions. And the one thing it relies upon is the secrecy of the law firm. So that means the law firm sets up all the structures and helps their clients effectively to hide money all around the world. What's different about the Mossack Fonseca papers is that it, it also shows fraud. So one example of it is one of the founders, so Mr. Moss, Moss, Mossack, was charged because he got false evidence in, in a court case in America. So there's actual evidence there that they basically forged, they forged instruments, they forged shares, they gave false evidence, just did whatever they could to hide assets. Now, that's different to the Appleby leaks, which came out this year, which 2017. Two, oh, sorry, 2017, which don't appear to have the same element of fraud, or, or else the journalists that have analysed it have not come, come up with fraud yet. The Mossack, Apart from tax evasion. Well, the interesting thing is that Appleby, as a law firm, does not give any tax advice. And in the offshore world, there's no tax. So there's no income tax. There's no corporate tax. So what that means is, is if you incorporate a company there, you actually don't pay any tax. So you don't need to give tax advice. The tax advice would come in the jurisdiction of the the ultimate owners, so the beneficial owners. So, for example, if it was me and I set up a company in the offshore world and set up bank accounts over there, um, what would happen is because Australia taxes on a basis of worldwide taxation, I would need to declare um, uh, income in my individual tax return and also beneficial my cor corporate tax returns. So. Um, yes, so Appleby didn't, if we now talk about the Paradise Papers, Appleby didn't, didn't do anything wrong, but their clients most likely did something wrong by not declaring the income in their residents, in their resident countries. That's exactly right. So, look, it, it appears they didn't do, didn't do anything wrong, but I think that if 
the journalists continue to go through it and they find something, I'm sure there'll be articles that will come, yes. come out about it. But with the Panama Papers, they were actually lawyers who also committed illegal acts. Yeah, and both of the founders have since been arrested for fraud. So, Which actually surprised me. So where were they arrested? Were they arrested in the United States? Panama. Oh, in Panama. I'm not sure if because I was wondering why why they went to the United States. You know, they would have known that they had all these this evidence against them. Why would they have gone to the United States? So they obviously didn't, but were arrested in Panama. They were. I see. So it was the Panama police, the parent Panama jurisdiction, who went after them. Yeah. I, look, I don't know if they're going to be extradited, but that case in Nevada where one of the founders gave evidence and essentially lied in court in a Panama court in an American court oh in American is, court is one of the examples that's been published of fraud there's also examples where they backdated loan agreements so as as you know if, if you backdate a loan agreement or you create a false instrument that's fraud in itself there's also evidence of our conspiracies look The one thing about the Mossack Fonseca leaks is you could spend a lot of time reading these articles and just getting immersed in the, mm, in the because stories. Because there's so much. Because there there's so much. Mm. Okay. So coming back to the very basics of Mossack Fonseca leaks, how did they get discovered? How did the whole well, thing start? We don't know. I, look, there, there's a very um, interesting book that uh, one of the... Um, journalists who um, was the recipient of the, of the material uh, he wrote a book about sorry the two journalists wrote a book about how they met John Doe so the the person who gave them the information is referred to as John John Doe his, his, his name hasn't been hasn't been uh, revealed so it's a made up name it's a made up name but the theory is that he could have been the IT consultant because the information is so broad Look, one of the articles I read indicated that there was a theory it was an IT consultant or someone who had access to the IT because the breadth of the information, the quality of the, inf uh, of the information is, is not something that a lawyer who is who's work, working in a law firm would have mm. the skill to, mm. to, to download or to, or to obtain. Yes, and to download 2.6 terabytes of data. It's a lot of data. Takes, it takes a bit of an IT background the IT consultant, took the data and then passed it on to a group of journalists. Look, there's a far more exotic story than that. In um, the Luxembourg leaks, which occurred a few years ago, um, the German secret intelligence paid one of the um, uh, consultants for a Liechtenstein bank a few million euros to obtain client information. So there's a very exotic story out there about how the German intelligence was able to crack a bank and to obtain all of the client lists. And there's one interesting story about how, as a result of the information they obtained, they um, arrested the, um, the CEO of uh, German Post for tax evasion, for hiding money. And so when I read this article, I, I thought it was amusing that, um, uh, that, that there was an allegedly overpaid head of a post around the world who got arrested. And just, uh, just uh, reminded me of stories that I read at the time about Uh, our CEO of, of uh, Australia Post and, and what he, he was paid. So this International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, it's, it's a long name. Uh, I think they abbreviate to, abbreviate it to ICJ or something, don't they? ICIJ. Oh, ICIJ, yeah. Who, who are they? Where do they come from? Because they are the ones who actually received the, the 2.6 terabytes of data from the, uh, the, from the league. Papers. So the... So the journalist, uh, the German journalists who received the information quickly worked out that they couldn't go through it all. There was just too much. 
they contacted ICIJ, which is a um, an organisation of journalists around the world, um, and they entered into an agreement. And one of the um, interesting things is that the ICIJ uh, was able to bring together journalists from all over the world, get them to sign up to an agreement, so that if they were the recipient of um, any any of the Mossack Fonseca um, information, they would not disclose any of it unless it was cleared or in, or unless it, it uh, met the criteria of, of the leak. And so uh, there's over 400 uh, journalists from around the world who have been given access to this, inf uh, to this information and they've been um, They've entered into an agreement not to disclose source information, so the primary evidence. And in terms of the scope of their um, analysis, I think it relates to the to the country in which they they um, they're, they're based. So every journalist would focus on on their own country. On their own country. Yeah. But I find it amazing that with 400 people being involved, that there haven't been more leaks of the league. Well, it's possible, but. No, there hasn't been, been a leak, and the IACIJ has been um, promoting this fact that, that they have been the, um, the sole recipient of the information. They haven't um, leaked anything. So, for example, if, if, if you're a perfectly law-abiding um, client of, of that law firm and your um, address, your phone number, how much money you had in the bank, who, who you lent money to, etc., all, all the, the bread and butter work that this firm did, if that got released it would be, um, uh, it, it might be a problem for you and you might have a cause of action against someone for breach of your you know, rights in whatever jurisdiction you live. So it's something that the, that the IAJ has been promoting and I think it's their way of actually also promoting themselves to future disclosures, future mm. potential um, leaks mm. so um, if around you, the world. So if you had to another two terabytes of data, then they become the go-to source and everybody knows they will handle the information I don't think there is carefully. any other organisation in the world that could do it. Mm. Uh, there is, in, in the, the offshore space, so into this, this space, there is a, a couple of blogs out there that, that are chasing Ponzi schemes in international fraud, but there is no one with the breadth of the IACIJ that's able to pursue wrongdoing and analyse uh, analyze information. Mm. I find that amazing, you know, it, it, to get so many journalists together and onto one page. I find it, it's a great it, achievement. It, it appears to be an interesting uh, community as well, where they all exchange information and the articles are high, uh, higher quality as well. So the ICIJ received the 2.6 terabytes of data, mm -hmm. they then gave access to these 400 journalists and they all analyzed their own air, their area because otherwise it's just too much for one person to analyze everything. What did they then do? From when the information was received and when the agreement with the ICIJ was set up and the journalists around the world met, um, there was a period where, they, where the The journalists were able to analyse the information and then there was a date, which was a dead, dead deadline date, where the journalists could um, publish information about, um, uh, about stories that are relevant to them or stories that have been assigned to them. So um, on, on that date there was front page articles in um, uh, the New York Times, uh, the London Times, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald, etc. There was that date when there was the, um, the opening of the information. And um, 
from what I've seen, there's 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 less articles out today, but there are still um, developing stories and uh, developing um, trials of information. So they had very clear rules what each journalist could disclose. Yes. Look, their, their agreement has never been disclosed as well. So mm. they talk about the agreement. So the ICIJ talks about the, the confidentiality requirements that uh, the journalists have agreed to, but no one's seen the agreement. But they do mention names. The primary evidence doesn't get disclosed. So if there is an, an, um, a piece of evidence, say an email, it's okay for the journalist to write an article about the email and to form conclusions, and it's okay to call up the recipients of the email and the, the person that sent the email, but just not to publish the email itself. And the reason for that is is that they don't want to um, uh, create a situation where their source gets caught or someone gets arrested somewhere in the world for participating in disclosing this information. Because in most countries in the world, um, there are protections for those Privacy in power. Laws. Well, mm. protections for those in power. Let's just put put it put it that way. It, I I think it would even go up beyond that, uh, where you could say that in most. Uh, jurisdictions around the world, if you were to publish in, publish information about someone who was powerful, there is a possibility if you lived there you could, you could get in a serious uh, trouble. I'll talk about two um, of the, one of the most, one which is the most exotic story uh, that's come out of the Mossack Fonseca leaks and another one which is the uh, least exotic but the best example of basic tax evasion, of, of basic use of the, uh, the offshore tax havens. Now, when there was the release of the Pan Panama Papers um, stories, the first round that came out, the, the main story that was on the front page of the New York Times, uh, uh, the London Times, and the major newspapers around the world was the leaks that related to uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, now, to set the ground rules, one of the things that is um, uh, interesting about the leaks is that the primary information, as I said, so the emails, the loan documents, the instruments, the bearer shares, all of the different things that the law firm created have not been publicly released. But what has occurred is the articles have been published about this information and then the witnesses, the people who are involved, have been asked about it. And uh, invariably the witnesses in all of these are stories decline to our comment, which is the interesting thing, thing about it. And in the example of, of Mr Putin, there is a, um, a story that came out about um, someone who is his best friend named Sergei Roldugan. And Putin and Roldugan are so close that there's a picture which uh, I think is in 1982 of Roldugan, Putin, and um, Putin's wife at the time and Roldugan's girl girlfriend at the time going on a uh, double date. And uh, since then they've been, they've been best friends. And what the articles have focused on is um, the fact that Rod Dugan has been a professional a celloist for his, his entire life and he's never earned a dollar to speak of. But is it celloist or violinist? Uh, it doesn't really matter, but I love, I love details. Yeah. Violinist. Yeah. But look, you've got this image in your mind of, um, of someone who's a professional Artist. musician who yeah. lives in St. Petersburg and has lived through the communist era and um, mm. uh, his best friend happens to, uh, to obtain the ultimate seat of power in such an important country. Now, having said that, uh, Roald Dugan has since become a partner of a bank, um, which is called Bank Russia, and he owns 3.9% of the bank. And one of the propositions that, that, that's been put to him is that he's actually holding the shares in the bank and other assets as, as a proxy for his best friend. 
Um, these these allegations have been put to him, and he hasn't responded to the allegations. I see. So the the theory is that it's actually Vladimir Putin who has assets in 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 an offshore tax haven that was arranged by Mossack Fonseca. Yeah. Look, it's it's not just a theory. So the um, so the papers and the articles actually go through the names of some of these entities. So one example is there's a company called uh, Sandalwood Continental which is registered in the offshore world, which is the holder, sorry, which um, lent back into Russia $103 million in September 2009. So what that means is there's this, there's this offshore corporation that's owned by Roald Dugan, and it lends back in $109 million to a Roald Dugan-related entity. And well, one of the things they bought was a ski resort, which is owned by... Well, Dugan, which is um, a ski resort that Putin's um, eldest daughter got married in. There is um, there's articles about sums of money that it, that are up to eight hundred million dollars that are lent back into Russia between two thousand nine and two thousand and eleven. And the significance of a loan is that if if monies are transferred back into a jurisdiction by way of income, they might be taxed. But if it's a loan, there's mm. no tax on loans. So the implications looks, from this... It looks fishy. Well, the, the implications from these um, uh, stories... Sorry, the implication from these stories regarding the loans is that um, they're designed not to be taxed and they're designed to be hidden. Now, the Guardian newspaper estimates that um, the value of the transactions that Roald Dugan was involved in is in the order of $1 billion. And there's some interesting emails that they com commented on where one of the founders of Mossack Fonseca, and, uh, one of the founders of Mossack Fonseca, actually described these loans as um, as a delicato, which means a delicate in uh, Spanish. And he wrote in an email that we could be in the presence of money payments of dubious origin and doubtful des destination. Now that's uh, pointing out the obvious, but it's interesting that even. Um, Somebody with his background. Well, one of the founders of this law firm who's been involved in some pretty exotic uh, deals over the years, even he was uncomfortable with um, uh, the monies that were loaned and the, um, the Sergei Roald Dugan-related uh, transfers. Okay, so the second case study um, that came out of the Mossack Fonseca leaks is not as exotic as the, um, the Putin um, story, uh, but I think it's, it's more important for analysis of basic tax evasion. So uh, this is the example of Steve's Guided Safaris Africa Incorporated. It relates to one, uh, in retrospect, very unlucky client of Mossack Fonseca by the name of John Stevens, who had a Zimbabwean safari. And so in terms of any um, analysis of ordinary concepts of income, you would say that if you are uh, running safaris on the ground in in Africa that you would have to pay income tax for the income that you received. Um, Mr. Stevens had other ideas, and what he did was he contacted Mossack Fonseca, and they set up a um, an international business company for him in the British Vir Virgin Islands. And um, they also set up for him a bank account in the Isle of Man. So in two um, non-connected offshore jurisdictions, there is one a bank account, and to a, um, a corp corporation that Mr. Stevens then used to basically uh, receive um, payments um, 
and then divert them out of the jurisdiction. So what it meant was that um, if there was a Safari client that, say, was flying into Europe, they would pay by our credit cards. The credit card payment would then go directly into a bank account in the Isle of Man, so it wouldn't even touch the shores of Africa. And um, under um, the law of the BVI, there's no requirement for tax returns. You don't pay any income tax. What does BVI stand for? The British Virgin Islands. Oh, I see British Virgin Islands. So that's where the company was incorporated. So um, what Mr. Stevens was able to do was not pay any uh, any income tax at all. Um, So a very simple technique uh, to evade income tax and um, from uh, the offshore leak stories, Mr. Stevens has since um, uh, decided to um, shut down his operation and it's resulted in him um, uh, quitting Africa. Uh, but look, it I think it goes back in history to if you are confident that you can um, incorporate in the offshore world, you can set up a bank account over there and that there will be 100% secrecy of your information. I think a lot of people out there have taken a calculated risk that that there's no way that that will come come back back on them, um, and because in the offshore world you don't need to pay any income tax because um, that's one of the um, uh, foundational. Um, it's kind benefits. kind of yeah, it's kind of the basics of their business model. Yeah, well, the the, the two uh, main elements of, the, of, of their approach are one to assure anyone who incorporates offshore that no one's going to find out their AR director and no one's going to find out um, any information regarding bank accounts they set up. Um, that's one. And two, uh, there's the grant of, the, of, of incorporation without any requirement to live onshore or, or have anyone who is onshore as, as, as a director. Whereas in, in Australia, as you know, if you want to be a director, sorry, if you want to incorporate a company, you need to have at least one onshore uh, director. In the offshore world, you, you don't. You mentioned that John Stevens um, set up an international business company in the British Virgin Islands and then also had a bank account on the Isle of Man. We always talk of offshore jurisdictions and tax havens. What actually are there? You could list a whole different set of ingredients. So if you want to talk about the most perfect offshore tax haven, the elements would be this. One would be that you could um, incorporate a company there without any restrictions on its activities. Okay. Number two, you could incorporate a company over there without any requirement to have a director who lives on shore. Uh, three, you would have no publicly available uh, re- register of uh, directors or, or anyone who holds shares. You would have no income tax requirements. You would have, um, sorry, no income tax. You would have no requirements for um, tax returns. Um, one of the... Um, Uh, the Emirates in the in the um, the UAE called RAK, and I'm sorry I've forgotten the actual uh, the actual name. It uh, goes above and beyond that. If you work uh, onshore as, as an investor there, you actually don't pay any income tax on your own income as well. So the characteristic of most of the offshore world, though, is that um, they don't actually want you to be there. They don't they don't want you to to live onshore. They don't want you to um, actually affect their economy. So um, it's really about giving you a grant of incorporation and use of bank accounts and um, helping you in the country in which you live or, or, or trade to use them as a facility, um, to use the jurisdiction as, as a facility. Now, they actually don't like being called an offshore tax haven, so they call themselves an offshore financial centre. That's how they, um, 
how they define themselves to, to the world. And so this term offshore tax haven is just a colloquial term that doesn't have an official definition. And what are these offshore financial centers? As in where, where they are? I think there's at least 50. Um, hmm. So um, countries like the Cayman Islands and the BVI and Bermuda are um, British overseas are territories. So they're countries of their own, but they're under the crown, a little bit like Australia. And that really surprises me that has the crown no power over these financial centers to say stop doing this? I'm just really surprised that the UK basically has been saying yes to these financial centers for so long. Well, these countries are largely independent, but the British government appoints a governor. But um, I've been to the BVI and uh, I've been to the Cayman Islands and um, one thing, I think the one incentive that they have is about um, economic development because these are small islands and um, they're looking for ways to um, fund uh, development. So the BVI itself isn't a very wealthy um, set, set of islands and it doesn't have an airport yet that is able to land jet planes. How did you get there? A very, a very small 16-seater propeller plane. That lands on the sea? Well, no, it, it, there, there, there's a small airport, but it doesn't have a runway that's long, long, long enough, enough to be able to take mm. jet planes. So, look, I think that, that this is part of an auction to the bottom, where if you're a country that's a small country um, looking to, um, to build up its economy and to attract um, funds from overseas, then one way you could do it is, is have an auction to the bottom about tax rates and about the sorts of things that you give to overseas invest investors. One thing I've read in the past month is that is that um, uh, Belarus has um, decided to try and set itself up as, a, as an offshore haven and specifically to give free reign to crypto uh, currency providers to basically set, set it up as like a Bitcoin fund, which is an, an interesting way you to go. And Belarus is between Russia and Poland, isn't it? I think so. Mm. Never been there. Mm. Uh, okay, so... There's the British Overseas uh, Territories, there's the European uh, tax ha havens, there's the Swiss, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, ah, yes. and so they offer, in terms of incorporation, um, protections for the, for the identities of um, who, whoever holds bank accounts. In con continental Europe, unlike Australia, you, they don't have trust law but they have other structures that allow you to uh, protect assets um, outside of trusts. They're the British Overseas Territories, which are the um, BVI, Brit British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands and Isle of Man. Yes. Then there are the European ones, Liechtenstein and Luxembourg. In Switzerland until recently had bank secrecy. The piercing of the bank secrecy laws for the Swiss has undermined um, that country's uh, jurisdiction to hide assets. They changed that over the last couple of years. So until then, they would have been a player in this area. But now, because they changed their bank laws, they're kind of out of this, out of this game. Yeah. Look, um, it's interesting that um, the countries that accuse other countries of um, being an offshore. Haven. So the, the USA has been accused by some other countries um, as um, being recipients of uh, funds of ill repute. There's some states in, uh, in America where there is no register of our directors. So I think you could look at a, a set of ingredients about what, um, 
constitutes a tax haven. And then depending on what the, um, the person wants who, who wants to um, use those ingredients, I, I think you could find them in a lot of jurisdictions around the world. Uh, but the, the, the two key elements are, one, that, no, that um, the identity of the investor is protected, and two, that there's no income tax. I think they're the two essential ingredients. Mm. And obviously Australia doesn't have that. Uh, and the, the US United States, exactly, the United States wouldn't have US that, and Switzerland that. wouldn't have that either. They mm. would have charged income tax on the interest that the uh, that, secret bank accounts. That's that's right. That's, that's what, what, what you expect. Okay, and then beyond that, you then have South America with Panama and and Belize and um, some other juris jurisdictions. I think. Look. The funny thing about this offshore world is that there's a shifting of sands all the time in that uh, pressure is brought to bear on the countries and they're forced to change their laws. And so there's, there's a, a shifting of sands, I think, where um, over the, the last um, 50 years or so, jurisdictions have been going on in and out of uh, favour for, um, uh, for hiding money. And so uh, the the um, the Bahamas was one uh, juris, juris jurisdiction which is no longer used oh, okay. as much. Uh, the Swiss is the best best example, I, th I, th I think, where they've got into, into problems with um, America and they've been forced to disclose information about um, bank bank accounts. Um, so, in terms of who's going to be the next uh, twenty years, I think look, we'll just have to, um, to see, see mm. what it what what offers are made. Is it always just secret bank accounts, or is it then also secret trusts and companies? Okay, well, in um, in Australia, uh, trusts can remain um, con confidential. So um, there is no re register of trusts in Australia. So if, if you were to set up a trust, um, it wouldn't show up in an ABN, and it wouldn't show up in a pro property search. Um, so trusts have been used in, in Australia to, um, uh, to shield the control of, of, of assets. Uh, but, but you can apply for an ABN for your trust, for a discretionary trust, for example, and then it would show up on the ABN register, for example. Uh, no, it doesn't. It just the, the, the identity of the trust on an ABN search is just the name of the trust. It doesn't... Or the uh, trustee, the name show, of the trustee. Then. Doesn't show the name of the trust, trust, trustee, no. Oh, I see. So just shows the name of the trust, but nothing else. Just yet. the name, name of the trust. So just the title of the trust. So, look, uh, trusts have been used his, historically to maintain control of assets. Um, but in Australia, you can still do an ASIC search and you can still identify who the directors are. You can issue a subpoena, for example, to find out who, who the trustees are. Um, so there's a, a bunch of techniques that um, someone who's trying to trace assets can, can use. In the offshore world, uh, what goes above and beyond that is you can have, uh, for example, what's called a bearer share. And what a bearer share is is that whoever is the holder of that share, so this is a corp corporate share, whoever is the holder of that share at, a, at any point in time has has title to that share. So there was there is no... Um, uh, Register of who holds shares, of who who owns the shares, who 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 has a title with shares at any time. So therefore, it's theoretically impossible to trace the share. Um, the other thing you can do in the offshore world is you can have companies as directors. 
So in Australia, it's illegal to have a company as a director or director is required to be an individual. Uh, whereas in the offshore world, no, you, you can have a, a director as a, sorry, you could have a corporate director. So that means that if you are able to, to get some information about a, um, um, a corporate structure in the offshore world, you may be... Uh, There's stuck. nobody behind it. Well, because you, you, you would see that, that what is behind it is another company. Mm. And, and then another um, company. And then another company, potentially. Mm. Now, Alan Bond used all these structures in the 80s where he had oral trusts and he had um, a, a whole trail of entities across the, um, across the Pacific, the Cook Islands, uh, Vanuatu, etc. Mm. So it, it, this has been used in, in, uh, in Australia before, but um, what's different now is the democratisation of this in, in that when Alan Bond did it, he would have had to have gone to top-tier law firms around, around the world to set up uh, stru structures, whereas now um, Australians can just get on the internet and they can, uh, they can incorporate and they can engage in a uh, mm. law firm or an agent overseas and uh, do it uh, themselves. I see. So that's why there's so much um, interest in setting up a trust or a company in an offshore tax haven and not just to do a, a bank account because if you just do a bank account, then your name is on the bank account, whereas if you set up a trust, a company and another company, etc., and then this, this company's name is on the bank account, hence it's a lot harder to trace it back to you. Well, yeah, look, one of the concepts that, um, that is around the world in this area is who is the ultimate owner or who is the ben beneficial owner. Uh, so this is a continuous concept where if you set up, an if, if you set up offshore and you have a bearer share and you have a corporate director, um, you could engage a law firm or an, an, an agent offshore to set up a bank bank account. And they would set up a bank account and they would send you the token. So they would send you the log, log, log in so you would have, have effective control over it. Uh, and that creates a bit of a problem for uh, creditors or anyone who's trying to trace assets. Because what you would have is you would have a bank account overseas. You would have um, the, the owner of the account as being a corporate structure. And you don't have any idea about who holds the tokens or who holds the control of it to be able to give directions to redirect money around the other world. Um, so that's one issue. That's that's one issue. Um, in in Australia, as you know, when, when you walk down to a bank, you've got to provide 100 points of ID to set up a bank account. Uh, in the off in the offshore world, you don't. So the Panama Papers were the first huge data leak after the Liechtenstein event. Um, what's interesting about that is um, that leak related to a bank which was the which is the the main bank that was that is owned by the Liechtenstein royal uh, family and it, it is it, it is um, so it kind of cut right to the core of the right Liechtenstein the of the jurisdiction, yeah. jurisdiction. Hmm. so what it meant was that all of the clients of, of, of that bank and most of the income of the country itself that related to um, the fees charged were revealed so Liechtenstein was the first big data leak. I can imagine in the 50s or 60s or 70s there weren't so many data leaks because it was all still in paper files and hence impossible to leak that much data. Whereas I think these big data leaks have now become possible thanks to technology. Look, I can't think of any um, leak in history with that much information that was transferred so so easily. And look, my experience when I started as a lawyer, and I think it was really at the start of an explosion in, in, in IT, when you did uh, discovery, there was no emails and there was just boxes of files and it was very slow. Whereas now, 
the game has changed so completely. So if you're involved in any um, analysis of information, it's uh, you're looking at a uh, completely different process. Uh, but in terms of the question you asked, which is in his history, is there any leaks of this type? No, you know, we mm. can't. Uh, we can't um, think of any. And look, one of the other things is, and this is something that's that's uh, that's a revolutionary is that when you have data on a computer, even if you delete. Uh, the data it doesn't actually get uh, deleted. You can reconstruct hard hard drives. Um, whereas in the past, if you burned a document, it was gone. Mm. So that's one one other element that is just completely new. Where if you think you're on a computer and you press the word you press delete, the data doesn't get uh, deleted necessarily. It can still be there. It can still be re recreated. Can you remember which year Liechtenstein was? Uh, no, I can't. I'm afraid. Mm. Just roughly, was it? 2010 was it fairly recent 2010 2011 uh, it's 2012? within the last 10, 10 years okay. I, I can't remember mm. because it's yeah. interesting we have Liechtenstein let's say let's say it was 2010 then we didn't have anything for six years and then we had the Panama Papers the Mossack Fonseca leak and then just a few months later we had the Paradise Papers which was also a massive data leak so the interval between the the big data leaks seemed to be seem to get smaller and smaller. It could go down to Moore's Law where, you know, every 18 months there's going to be a, a doubling of uh, computer speed and a doubling of uh, data capacity and um, so you'd think that it would continue to accelerate. Um, on the other hand, law firms around the world are, are taking steps to try and uh, protect data, protect the information. And um, so, you know, there's countervailing forces there where... Um, Uh, you would think that law firms will catch up to, to protect their information. Can you just quickly tell me about the Paradise Papers? And I think the first details were made public on the 5th of November 2017. Do you know how the um, Paradise Papers came about? The journalists who disclosed it haven't written a book, book about it yet. So there's no... Um, so in terms of the Paradise Papers, there's, there's no... Um, so other than the articles that have come come out about it, there's there's no um, book yet which captures the whole process of, of the leak. But it's completely completely different to the Mossack Fonseca leaks in that uh, this is a top-tier law firm, so we're not talking about some um, law firm in a, um, a third-world uh, juris, juris, mm. uh, jurisdiction. We're talking about a top-tier law firm in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Bermuda, the top firm there, um, which had been around for um, 100 years, uh, British-based firm. And they were called Appleby, weren't they? Or they called are called Appleby. Appleby. Yes. Mm. Okay, so the um, the amount of information that um, came out of the leak for the Appleby leaks was 1.4 terabytes. So second to the Pan Panama Papers, but um, still an enormous leak. What's different about this, though, is that um, there's no... Well, there's no articles that have come out yet about actual fraud. So what you've, you've got is a top-tier law firm that's acted for Nike and acted for a whole bunch of large corporates around the world that's helped them to set up structures. So we're talking about um, a completely different set of clients. Mm. And what's interest, interesting about that is the articles that have come out have talked about how um, the law firms have used structures all around the world to, um, to minimise tax. The Panama Papers incremented many thousands of basically small players, whereas the Paradise Papers seem to have involved a lot more US technology conglomerates. It included Facebook, Twitter, Apple, Uber, whereas the um, Panama Papers seem to have involved smaller players that hid money. 
That appears to be the case, and um, all, all the stories that come come out have, have um, focused on the tax um, avoidance. And I didn't say tax evasion. I'm not saying these these uh, big cor- corporates are evading tax, but there's very thought out um, aggressive tax planning methodologies for um, avoiding tax. And so one of the key um, approaches, the key met- met- methodologies that's been discussed is. Um, moving the intellectual property, so the IP, from one jurisdiction to a low-tax uh, jurisdiction. So I think Ireland time, is very popular. Yep, yep. So that every time that a, a, a sale has been made, and there's there's a great article in, in the um, in the ICIJ website about um, how much tax is paid on a pair of shoes when it's sold in Australia by Nike. And um, one of the approaches that's used is to... Um, to siphon off, I think you could describe it accurately, mm. um, some of the, the sale proceeds... Yeah, profit shifting. Prof, profit shifting um, that relates to the IP. Um, now, Ireland is is an, an example of a low-tax jurisdiction, not a, um, a, a, a no-tax uh, juris, uh, jurisdiction. But if, for example, you move your IP to a no-tax uh, juris, uh, jurisdiction, then um, any income received is... Tax-free. Is tax-free. I see. And so did the Paradise Papers suggest that IP hadn't just been sh- transferred to Ireland, but that IP was actually sitting in... In uh, Bermuda, for example. In Bermuda. Yes. Mm. yes. yes. So, so that was one of the met- methodologies. Now, what's interesting is, you know, you're thinking, well, if you read about this and you think, well, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Apple, etc. Appleby isn't their main law firm. Appleby isn't the one doing the thinking behind this necessarily. So... Uh, one aspect of this is is interesting is is that Appleby may be involved with other law firms, but there's no um, suggestion that, that they're the only one that's coming up with these ideas. So you'd think that there's top-tier accounting firms, top-tier law firms that have set up the structures, thought them through, and then worked with Appleby on them. And also, Appleby doesn't give any ta- tax advice as well. I think I've said that before, but um, they specifically set up the structures, but they carve out from the scope of works any tax advice. Welcome back. Ben briefly mentioned Belarus aiming to become a major player among cryptocurrency providers. And I think that is very interesting. Cryptocurrencies operate outside of the banking system, at least at the moment, and so will probably feature in tax evasion schemes soon, if not already. In the next episode, episode 31, Kevin Bungert, the CEO of Class, will talk about the December 2017 Class Benchmark Report and a lot more. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Just disappoint you